Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 71 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is a guitarist who has taken his instrument to uncharted sonic territory, often while we danced our asses off, Adrian Ballou. Mind you, composing ingenious solos and sending them through ear-bending processors is far from all that Ballou has done. He's also an accomplished singer-songwriter who has released close to 20 solo albums and taken center stage in bands such as King Crimson and The Bears. But his revolutionary work on guitar has elevated some outstanding songs and albums and the rest of the music world. After Frank Zappa saw him play in the mid-70s, he invited Baloo to join his band. Baloo is on the album Sheep Your Booty. Bowie took notice and hired Baloo as his lead guitarist for the tour that became the live album Stage and then the 1979 studio album Lodger. That's Baloo's corrosive solo at the end of Boys Keep Swinging. Producer Brian Eno, who worked on Lodger, was then collaborating with Talking Heads on a new album. At the time, it consisted of long, African-flavored grooves yet to be structured into songs. Eno and the band brought in Baloo to lay down some solos, which he did. The finished album, Remain in Light, came to be seen as not only a high point for the band, but one of rock's trailblazing works. The Talking Heads tour that followed, as captured on the second half of the live album, The Name of This Band is Talking Heads, was just as galvanizing. It introduced the Heads' big band and showcased Baloo on lead guitar in all of his mind-warping glory. If you haven't seen it already, check out the Talking Heads Live in Rome 1980 concert film on YouTube or elsewhere. As you watch the performance of The Great Curve, with the crowd whipped into a frenzy as Baloo unleashes his final insane solo, you may think that this was the hottest band in the history of planet Earth. Cherry Harrison of Talking Heads and Baloo are touring a Remain in Light concert across the country. It begins February 16th in Denver and runs through June. I'll offer more details at the end of this episode. When Talking Heads went on hiatus after supporting Remain in Light, Baloo joined its rhythm section of Tina Weymouth and Chris France in the Bahamas to create the self-titled debut album of the side project, The Tom Tom Club. You're hearing Baloo's guitar on the club smash Genius of Love, which he co-wrote along with many of the others. But for reasons he discusses here, Baloo ended his Talking Heads association at this point. Guitarist Robert Fripp invited him to form another band, which initially had a different name, but wound up adopting the moniker of Fripp's renowned prog band, King Crimson. Baloo became the lead singer, lyricist, and key songwriter guitarist in this angular new wave incarnation of King Crimson. It promptly released three acclaimed albums, Discipline, Beat, and Three of a Perfect Pair. During this time, Baloo also launched a solo career with the albums Lone Rhino and Twang Bar King. After his version of King Crimson split, at least for a while, he continued to guest on others' albums, such as Laurie Anderson's Mr. Heartbreak and Paul Simon's Graceland. That's his guitar sounding like a saxophone on You Can Call Me Al, and he's on The Boy in the Bubble as well. Baloo made two albums with a poppy new band, The Bears, and had a fluke solo hit with a charming 1989 song, Oh Daddy, a duet with his 11-year-old daughter, Audie. The solo albums continued. I gave 1992's Inner Revolution a thumbs up in the Chicago Tribune. So did his work on such albums as Paul Simon's The Rhythm of the Saints and Nine Inch Nails' The Downward Spiral and The Fragile. He continues to make new music to this day, 
touring with his power trio while also participating in the Celebrating David Bowie Tour. How is Blue stretched by working with Zappa, Bowie, Talking Heads, King Crimson, Paul Simon, and Nine Inch Nails. How big of an influence was Jeff Beck? What kind of an impact did Baloo's learning drums first have on his guitar playing? When he performs those Talking Heads songs now, is he trying to recapture what he did four decades ago, or does he play the way his style has evolved? With Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth at odds with David Byrne during the Remain in Light period, what did Baloo observe Jerry Harrison's role to be? Baloo also gives a definitive answer to a nagging question that has popped up over the years. Was he really asked to replace David Byrne in Talking Heads? How did he respond? Please enjoy this once-in-a-lifetime conversation with Adrian Ballou. Hey, how are you? Great to talk to you. I'm doing great, thank you. Very excited about uh, what's coming up next. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys at the Vic. I saw you at the Vic uh, years ago, either on the Inner Revolution or Here Tour. So uh, I've seen you there, but it's been a while. So that's cool. Yeah, it really has been a while since I played the Vic. I was so surprised to see it on this tour. I was even thinking that it may not even be up and running anymore because I used to play it a lot. The Bears used to play it. Right. And uh, solo touring used to play it. So it has been a long time. I've played a lot of different Chicago venues since then. So it'll be fun for me to see it again. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. So when you were in touring with Talking Heads on Remain in Light and like playing those shows, including the live in Rome that you could watch on YouTube or get on DVD, at the time, were you thinking, I'm in the hottest band that has ever existed? That really is what I was thinking, because... Everywhere we went around the world, and this was true even on the tour I had done before with David Bowie the, the year before. Right. Everywhere you went, you you would hear Talking Heads in bookshops, restaurants, clothing stores, wherever you went, they were playing Talking Heads. So it was obvious to me that they were reaching a, a sort of a saturation point. But with Remain in Light, I could feel the explosion, that suddenly this is pushing them way up. Uh, it was fun to be around. It was fun to watch it happen. And uh, the excitement was there for everyone because the audiences were just beside themselves wherever we went. Um, so you could tell that they were, they were really exploding. It was fun to be there. That performance of The Great Curve on the Live in Rome, you guys are so on fire. And there's a point in it, too, where they have you could sort of see the audience and you could see them just getting whipped into this frenzy. So and you look like you're having about as much fun as anyone could have on a stage, too. Well, there was a really unique chemistry with with me along with them. I, I'm not just saying that because it's me, but me, many people have mentioned that it was it was never the same quite before or since. Um, I think that they needed the elements that I had weren't in their band. They didn't really have a strong soloist or someone who could make a lot of colorful sounds to fill in for the things that were missing from the record. That was my role. And I, I think that on top of that, you know, I, I was very young and, and excited and happy and <laughs> Uh, we got along great, and I really felt a part of it. I knew I wasn't in the band, but I accepted that. That didn't mean anything to me. I felt like, well, yeah, but when you're on stage, what's the difference? You're a so part you, of it. Yeah. When you were brought in to record those parts on Remain in Light, what sort of shape were those tracks at that point? What were you hearing when you did those parts? 
Very empty, very empty tracks. Basically, bass lines with drum beats, uh, those things were finished, and they were in one key. They went all the way through the song. No key changes. Very unusual. Right. And and for me, being a guitar player, it was like going to heaven because, <laughs> you know, you could play anything you want as long as you stayed in that key. <laughs> and there are also no chord changes on that record, too. It's like it's not even just the key. It's just like it's just that's these... what I'm saying. That, that's what yeah. I mean. No chord changes. That's what I meant by by one key. They stay in if yeah. but the great curve is in E and the great curve does not move from that. What they did when they recorded the record is they made it in layers, lots and lots of layers. Each layer would be one thing, you know, it might be a good, uh, you know, Jerry Harrison going, da, 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 you know, on guitar and that's it. And that goes through the whole song, but you don't hear it through the whole song because they bring things in and out and group them in different groupings. When they do that, it implies a chorus, but there's actually no real chord changes going on. So anyway, back to what was the ingredients when I heard it. It's an interesting story that Jerry Harrison told me later was they had just recorded a few bits of this and a few bits of that, and they really had not much, not much there yet. And David was getting a little concerned about, well, what am I going to do for the vocals? I don't know exactly what to do. It's not really a song per se, like you said, and play on a guitar. Um, I came in and Jerry said, I was so excited by it and jumping around and having such a great time that it, it kind of renewed their confidence and their interest in it. So what I, well, when I went in the studio though, I mean, for me, it was just a field day. I, I just said, wow, this is fun. I I can do anything on this. I could have stayed there and played for days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's true. I was excited by it because it was, it was pretty fresh. I'd never heard anything really like it. So that's why I believe why it's a milestone record because there really was never a, a record made like that until that point. Now people do it all the time. Yeah, it's funny. Even something like Once in a Lifetime, you think of as being like sort of a verse chorus song. But when you actually listen to it, it's just that groove over and over, but they've come up with ways to make it, you know, there's a chorus there that's a very catchy chorus, and then there are these verses that are very memorable, but the bed of it doesn't really change that much except for those layers that you're talking about. Um, Yeah, so they bring in some different layers, and that's the chorus. So, you know, the guitar part, for for example, uh, changes to a different set of guitar thing. Instead of but it's still underneath, as you say, the underpinnings are still exactly there, especially rhythmically, because uh, as I said, they finished all the rhythm parts before they started adding all the layers and layers of things. So um, that's the reason, of course, why when they decided, wow, we need to go play this live now, they realized, well, we can't do it as a four-piece band. Right. So they turned themselves into the extended band with 10 members and percussionists, two uh, bass players, two keyboard players. I mean, we had everything on stage, as we do now, only this this version has a horn section and everything. Oh, cool. <laughs> so we really, we really crank it up. When you were recording your parts on this, did it strike you as like, these are like avant-garde songs, like this is their avant-garde album, or did you think this is just a a rock album, but they're coming at it in a different way? I didn't think of it as avant-garde. There wasn't much there to really say, well, this is weird, or this is uh, 
pop or it's whatever. It, it was so open that I didn't really have much time to think about it. Um, I, I guess I was a little surprised that it wasn't songs. You know, it wasn't Psycho Killer, and then you change to the next set to say, you know. I mean, it wasn't that. It was just groove tracks. But, I mean, I knew David Byrne was there. Jerry was there. Brian Eno, I, I mean, I knew they were cooking up something really good because they always had. So what did you think when you finally heard the album? Oh, no, it wasn't what I expected because I hadn't. I, I left with no real expectations. I probably couldn't have told you what I just did, even. So for me, it was joyful to hear it again. Oh, wow, remember I played that. Oh, wow, it turned, that song turned into this. <laughs> you know, and, and I also realized pretty quickly, well, I've never heard anything like that. So I guess it's a good thing. And then immediately the reviews and the reception of it proved that, well, this is something that people are loving. So it, I think it really took them to a whole new level. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, when, when you were recording your stuff, by the way, who was in the studio? Like, were there were a bunch of them there and were they giving you guidance? Or was it just kind of like, here's what we have, just put something down? It was Jerry, David, and Eno. Uh, Chris and Tina, as I say, were finished with their parts. So maybe they were out of town even, I don't know. But they weren't, they weren't there. So it was just the four of us and the engineer. And I'll, I'll tell you the story that happened behind... The Great Curve, which is one of the songs that people always mention the guitar work in. Oh, yeah. Um, one of them, probably Eno, maybe Jerry or David, said, okay, we just want you to go out and you're going to hear this track, and what we want you to do is sort of stand there for a while until you, and imagine where you think a guitar solo would appear, and then put the guitar solo in, play something there, and we will write the song around what you've played. So that's what I did. And I went out in the the room and I waited, you know, two minutes or so and thought, okay, I guess a guitar solo should happen right here. I launched into playing and finished in the appropriate time that I thought a solo should be and looked up at the studio glass through the into the control room and they were literally just jumping up and down screaming at each other how you know? and I thought well that worked out <laughs> so I decided well okay I'm going to stay here and let us continue to play same thing and I waited around for a while longer and put a second solo on there and that's the great curve and that's how the whole day was no one ever instructed me in any way to say play this part or make sure you put this thing just go in and go wild <laughs> same thing that really happened with almost everyone i've played with ever since nine inch nails especially or yeah david bowie same way um was only someone like Frank Zappa, whose material was very well orchestrated ahead of time and very complicated, that you were asked to play it consistently and correctly, and you were given your spot in the live shows, but that's not what he needed, really. He needed people to play his music correctly. Same with Paul Simon for Graceland. Grace, uh, Graceland, when I went and did that, I spent four days in the studio with Paul Simon by himself and the engineer and producer Roy Haley and 
that's what would happen. He would say, okay, I want you to play da, 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 da. And I would say, okay, how about I do that with a saxophone type sound? And okay, now I've done that. Okay, how about you do the harmony to it? Okay, how about you do one that's, you know, higher than that and, you know, so forth. So he was very exacting, but most the artists that I've ever worked with, I think have brought me in because they think that I'm going to do something unique to their music. Right. Yeah. On Graceland, you're on, you can call me Al uh, with your dad and uh, boy in the bubble also. Right. And under African skies. Yeah. I'm on five of the the cuts on there and I was the actual first um, non-African musician to play. So the day I walked in and uh, Roy had was playing some of the songs for me before Paul arrived, I actually thought Roy had put up the wrong tape because <laughs> it didn't sound <laughs> anything like a Paul Simon record. It sounded like an African record. <laughs> Do you think that between King Crimson and you know Remain in Light that they thought, well, he's done stuff that has this kind of rhythmic stuff, so you would be a good person to bring in for that? I was recommended to Paul by Laurie Anderson, and she said to him, if you want someone on your record who plays guitar but doesn't play it like a guitar, this is the guy. He just makes all kinds of interesting sounds, and it might be something that works for you. And that's how I got that uh, that job with him and ended up playing on his next two records. So I did three records with Paul. Yeah, the cool thing there is that, is that you're doing all this interesting stuff, but it's not like there's not like really a spotlight on it. It's just sort of like, if you sort of look, look at it, you're like, Oh, there are these really great textures here and uh, really great parts. Yeah. When we did, for example, you can call me Al that part. Da, 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 da. Like I said, I did a guitar synthesizer section of saxophone sounds and uh, it sounded just like that. And then I think they brought in, you know, some real saxophones to go along with it, but I'm there. You can't tell because I'm part of the sax section, but, it's it's kind of funny wherever I go in the world, you know, I can hear that song play. It's another one of those songs that just seems to be everywhere. Oh, sure. And I'll hear my part right off the bat, and I go, wow, that's interesting. That's me, and nobody in this room knows it. <laughs> Would you, would you have liked to do another Talking Heads album in which you would have come in earlier in the process? Well, you know, after we did the Talking Heads tour during it, there was some talk of me actually becoming the fifth Talking Head. And I was really thinking about that because I thought, well, I also had been approached by Robert Fripp saying, I want to start a band with you and Bill Bruford. It wasn't called King Crimson, but of course I was a big fan of Robert's work and Bill Bruford was my favorite drummer so that was a huge option too um so it's always interesting to me if it had actually worked out that they had made me a, a formal offer but they didn't for one thing David Byrne was gone for about 2 months in Bali and he was kind of unreachable <laughs> so I know that Jerry Chris and Tina were very up for me being in the band because I, as I said, I've kind of been part of their thing for a while by then, made a bunch of stuff with them and, and uh, we fit together really well. It's interesting to think about, but there was no offer. So it made it much simpler 
you have an offer to join this band with Robert Fripp and Bill Bruford, which ultimately came became King Crimson. Right. So and obviously, either, obviously thing, became a big either thing would have been great. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, the, the Talking Heads thing, I've seen sort of different accounts of it. I, I mean, I'd seen one where they'd said that, that Tina and Chris wanted you to replace David Byrne, and then I saw them shoot that down, and it would have been you being the fifth member as opposed to the fourth member, so I don't know what, what the true story is there. There was some conflict about who wrote what in the band, and so, you know, I think between them, they must have worked that out. But at the time of the Remain in Light tour... There was talk of, oh, well, well, they actually asked me at one point, what would you think of that? And I said, absolutely not. I don't <laughs> I don't think anyone can replace David Byrne. But, you know, if you're talking about adding me to the band, I think that would have been a really great idea. I think we could have worked together well, he and I, and written various things and harmonized and so forth. There would have added something very different to their band. My impression is that there was a fair amount of tension between, you know, Tina and Chris and David and and I and I always sort of pictured Jerry kind of being the cool energy to the side. Maybe this is wrong, but like, what is he like as sort of a fellow musician to be collaborating? Jerry is the glue, and he always was with King, with um, Talking Heads. I noticed it right from the beginning. Everyone kind of had their own attributes, but Jerry was the guy who would get things done. He was the guy who would sort of make it all happen within the band. Uh, he was the go-between between the business things that had to happen, and he was kind of the cool head of the bunch. I think I think David is just, you know, as you would suspect, he's a little off the wall. Chris and Tina have their own, their own things. They're a team. Um, and I, I think always Jerry was the one who was meant to kind of settle everyone down and get things done. And he still is that way. When, for example, we put the band together to go on tour, the 10-piece band, David was not able to make, he was out of town in L.A. We were in New York. He wasn't even there for the ter- first two days of the rehearsals. And we only had four days to figure out how to play Remain in Light. Jerry orchestrated the whole thing. I helped him only with the helping him figure out who should sing what parts and things. But other than that, it was Jerry who stood there and made sure everything that was essential was in the song and everybody knew what they were supposed to play and what the arrangement was. Then when David walked in on day three, it, it really turned into what it's supposed to be. Well, that's kind of Jerry. That's why he makes it, he's a good producer. That's what he does. You know, he can orchestrate things for people and get them to be doing what they're supposed to do. You guys having fun doing this now? Absolutely. Uh, I have so much fun with it. It's just, you know, the music is just so fun for me. It's easy for me, enjoyable. I get to do whatever I want to a point. Um, And I love everybody involved. I love the audience reaction. And and I really, truly love the fact that it's, it's so... When we finished the first show, Jerry hadn't really played out live much in the previous two decades. He's He's been, um, you know, been producing bands. I mean, he said to me, I really haven't played much music live on stage for about 20-something years now. At the end of the first show, he came to me and just hugged me with tears in his eyes because it was such a happy lifetime moment for him. And 
that meant everything to me. That sounds great. Have any of the other Talking Heads members come to see any of the shows, or do you think they will? They have not. Chris and Tina have come to see my trio, and they came backstage, and we had fun, and, um, you know, got along great. Um, I haven't seen David for quite a while. The last time I saw him, I went to two of his concerts. I don't know if any of them will come now that we're maybe more in their territory. I think it depends. Chris and Tina are, you know, pretty set in the, in Connecticut, David Byrne in New York City. So who knows if we play those places, maybe they'll come. I think uh, they would love it. <laughs> so, and you played on the Tom Tom Club album right after Remain in Light, and you're on uh, Genius of Love. Is that your guitar going, or is that a synth? I I can't tell you for sure. <laughs> I don't know exactly. I can't. I can't really remember what I did. I was there for two weeks, uh, riding with them in their apartment, which was up the hill from the studio. And I ended up just putting down so many different thoughts and ideas. Um, and no, once again, everything was sorted out much later. Uh, there was no vocals. There was nothing because we were just trying to create some tracks to work with. So I can't tell you. It, it could be. It could be a keyboard. I don't know. I can make a sound like that, but I'm not sure if it was me. I know I played another part that's in there. Um, I hear the kind of flanging that I was using, which was really uh, an a, a unusual effect. It almost sounds like a steel drum. But anyway, yeah. Was that was that a good experience? Whoever played that part really, make, really, really made that record happen. All. <laughs> Whether it was well, me or somebody good, else. Yeah, it's such a key hook. So I thought, uh, thought well, because 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 it could sound like your guitar. It's 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 just hard to tell what what it what it is at that point. But it's certainly the the thing that you remember from that song. Well, Even it's so it, simplistic too. That's the thing about it. Da 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 da. da, da. I mean, there's something about it. It's it's so memorable. Um, and, and you know, sometimes I'll be in a situation and I'll play something that's utterly simple. Because most of the time I don't. <laughs> most of the time I play something that's not simple. And, uh, but every now and then, you know, it's just mean, oh, I think this should be in there. And when people ask me to do stuff, I have 15 different ideas of <laughs> what I think I could add to it. When Robert Fripp uh, approached you, the band was going to be called Discipline, uh, which instead became yeah. the name of the first King Crimson album with you. What did you think when they sort of pivoted and said, you know what, this band is King Crimson? Tony Levin and I didn't like the name from the beginning, Discipline. Um, I don't know what Bill thought about it, but Robert loved the name. It was his idea. But we said a couple of times, well, you know, the thing is about that word Discipline, maybe it means something different. Uh, to English people, but in America, it's kind of unfriendly. It, right. it has connotations, you know, that are not necessarily, uh, you know, good connotations. So, you know, we gave Robert that to think about and didn't say much more after that, but I think he knew that me and Tony were not exactly thrilled with that as a name. And then one day, Robert, we were sitting at a table, and Robert said, whatever we call the name of the band, in spirit, it is King Crimson. So 
I believe it was me who said, well, then let's just call it King Crimson, because that's a band I'd be proud to be in, because I knew King Crimson, I knew its history, and it always seemed to me to be a, a band that was unapproachably great <laughs> you know, on, a, on a new level of, of, you know, I always thought, wow, those guys are just beyond most players. So once he agreed to that, of course, it set into motion a lot of interesting things. First of all, you know, then it became Robert's band because it, King Crimson was Robert's band. So that changed the dynamic of things. But on a positive note, and that was positive too, but on a positive note, it became, well, here's the return of the King Crimson. Um, and a lot of things happened, good and bad, from that. At first, I think the hardcore King Crimson fan said, wow, this doesn't sound like King Crimson, and who's that skinny guy in the middle, and where's John Wetton, and so on. <laughs> but over time, I think we won most of them over, and we certainly won the hearts of a lot of new fans, uh, especially young people who just went at that time and didn't know the old King Crimson material. I hear I hear for them daily for the rest of my life that you know that that one record discipline changed their lives uh, just like Remain in Light did for some people as well. Right, and it looks like you're playing one song from that in the in the Stuart show, or at least you were uh, when you were playing in the fall. Yes, it was decided at the beginning. Jerry wanted to play one of his songs, and we said we should play one of mine. I, I chose Thela Hunjinji because I felt that it fit the the band. I could really hear that song with backup singers and a percussionist and horn section and more guitar players and more stuff going on. And uh, it turns out really well. It's a, it's a killer version of it. It's very exciting. It sounds like Talking Heads meets King Crimson, so there you go. <laughs> right, it's already got this kind of tribal thing going on, so it makes sense in that show. Yeah, I wanted to play into that more. It's funny, one time we did a show with my trio on Vancouver Island, and there was a big jam session at the end of it. Everybody could just get up on stage, and we started playing Thela Hunjinjit, and before we knew it, we had 20 people up there with tambourines and hitting things. And I said after after that, I announced it as, there you have it, folks, Talking Heads meets King Crimson. <laughs> so that's probably what I was thinking when when I decided that should be the one. Do you feel like you've changed or developed or evolved much as a guitar player since you were you know doing those tracks originally? Oh, yes. <laughs> In so, so many ways, I've... I'm still changing. I that that's kind of my mo. I never really wanted to stay in one place and uh, just do what I've already done, or even just refine it. I've I'm always been I've always been about uh, challenging myself and moving forward and finding new sounds, new techniques, new tunings, new anything new to stir up the inspiration that is needed to create all these records. So that's how you end up with 25 solo records is you, you're right. still reinventing things. David Bowie did that. So I learned it from him. But even before that, it was what my heroes and mentors, the Beatles did for a while. They, they sounded the same early on, but then suddenly they were doing a different sound. Every record from, you know, rubber soul to revolver to Sergeant pepper, completely different stuff. 
And um, so I, you know, growing up with that, I just assumed that that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> On the other hand, you have the Rolling Stones who pretty much did the same thing the whole time. <laughs> right. And they're great at it. So when you play these older songs, are you trying to recreate how you played them then, or are you playing the way, you know, you play now? I play the way I play now. I have, I feel like I'm better and I have more options to choose from that are more exciting to me at least. Um, and also that would take a particular set of tools that I no longer even have. Um, you know, the sounds that I made back then were, ah, gee, they're, they were made by things that you have a hard time replicating now. So it doesn't make sense for me to try to do the same exact thing. That's not what it's about anyway. Um, I never feel that going on stage as a guitar player, you're supposed to mimic the record so much. I mean, you should keep the, as I always say, the spirit of it. And if there's something that's, you know, definitely a part of the song that would be missing if it wasn't there, you keep that part. For example, if you didn't have the, the Robert Tripp guitar line that's in Heroes, that song wouldn't even sound like Heroes. <laughs> right. So you, you have to make those kind of choices. But, yeah, I, I prefer to let it, let it happen every night. Never the same. Of course, all the other things are the same, just solos and stuff, not really the same. Do you have uh, Power Trio shows coming up as well as these? After we do this first run of how many ever shows, I think it's maybe 28, uh, I almost instantly go back to doing uh, the Celebrating David Bowie tour for two months. Slightly different lineup, so the show will be different in some ways because we base the show on the, the material choices on who's in the band and what the strong points would be. And it's going to be, as usual, another stunningly good show. There's so much material to choose from with David. It'll be the fourth time I've done celebrating David Bowie, and every time it's been fantastic and different every time. That brings me kind of to the end of June, and at that point, I definitely want to take time at home to uh, complete the next record. I've already started seven songs. Um, and that leaves the fall to uh, rev up the trio and go and play hopefully a five-week tour of my material. Cool, and then you can come back In to Chicago. Fall. Oh, God, we would not miss Chicago for the world. <laughs> By the way, you were a drummer before you were a guitarist, right? I still am a drummer, yeah. I play everything, all the drums on my solo records. So uh, how much did that did learning drums first inform the way you picked up and play guitar? Absolutely. No question about it. Uh, having a strong rhythmic background and understanding what it needs, what you need to, to be able to play drums and the independence and all those other things that it requires. I don't think I could have been in Frank's band had I not had that background. I definitely would not have been able to do what I do, did in, in King Crimson because those songs were utterly based on everyone playing in different time signatures together, <laughs> right. which is probably the most complicated thing that a band can do. And I would, I would literally be up there playing the complicated stuff and singing it something else at the same time and, and shaking my butt in 4-4. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, it's the rhythm in me. Um, you know, I didn't have much training. I was in the marching band, but I understood it from the beginning. And I've played drums a lot in my life. You reach a plateau unless you practice really, really hard all the time. You become a monster drummer. I never really wanted to do that. Um, I wanted to be able to play what I hear in my mind and be creative. And that's what I try to do on my records. Working with Zappa and you know Bowie, Talking Heads, King Crimson, Nine Inch Nails, do these experiences stretch you in specific ways as a guitarist? Oh, absolutely. I can remember certain things that happen on the spot that I discovered on the spot. I don't know why I thought, what if I turn the tremolo around backwards and press it? What happens then? And I realized when you press it down then, the note, instead of going down, goes up. So you can do it quickly. It sounds like an Indian flourish. Da 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 that kind of thing. And right there on the spot, I developed that idea. I'd never heard anyone else do it. It was long before anyone else that I know of was doing it and put it on that record. And, <laughs> and from there on, I've, I've done it a lot. So sometimes something just occurs to you right then and there. The last thing I saw, you you wrote a really nice uh, piece on Facebook about um, Jeff Beck. And, uh, you know, it's been like sort of a rough year losing Jeff Beck and Tom Verlaine, um, two different, you know, very different guitarists. But uh, like, how much was Jeff Beck an influence on, you know, what you went on to do? The biggest influence, I would say. And I explained it in one of my, I did three posts about him, and I'm going to do another one. I explained it this way. When I was not even a guitar player, and I was a drummer in my first couple of teen bands, Jeff Beck was the guitar player. No one had even in America had yet even heard of Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton, even though Eric Clapton had been in the Yardbirds. We didn't know that because he never toured with them or anything. So the first guitar player, all of us my age in that age group who were there when the Beatles hit it big, all of us teenagers, we were Jeff Beck fans. He was the rock god guitar player. Later, of course, there were three of them. They were all three in the Yardbirds, Eric, Jimmy Page, and um, and Jeff. And then a couple of years later, there was Jimi Hendrix the four great rock guitar gods of the 60s and beyond. Uh, but for me, it was always Jeff Beck, uh, as much as I loved the other guys. And, of course, Jimi Hendrix was something entirely different from all of that. I mean, he was not just a great guitarist. He was a force of some sort, you know, almost like a being from another planet. He had such a an amazing stage presence and he, his voice and his songs and his delivery of everything. He was a master bluesman, but Jeff Beck was a pure guitar player. He stood there and just played guitar year after year after year. He got better and better and developed things that all of the other guitar players over the years eventually said, that's what I want to play like. <laughs> I mean, every guitar player I've ever known has said, Jeff Beck, yeah, I like to play. I like, I like his playing because he, he sort of typifies what you should play. Um, if you had, you know, if you were just given free reign to improvise, that's Jeff Beck. And, um, you know, I was friends with him and we had a, 
a very special kind of relationship. Didn't see each other a lot, but we loved each other. I know that he really did appreciate what I did. Um, and, of course, I loved what he did. So, yeah, it's a it's a big loss except for this. You know, he's, his music is still here. He's still here in our hearts and minds. So the only difference is, you know, he's gone to something we don't know what. And that's fine because it was time for him to do that. Yeah, he he really expanded the palette of what guitars could sound like. And that's something that Absolutely, you've done as well. Yeah. And so it makes makes total sense. But one thing when I as I was growing up as a guitar player and was totally unknown, I studied a lot of guitar players, especially Jimmy and Jeff. And one thing I said to myself was, Well, I can't be those guys. No one will ever be those guys. They already have defined what that part is. So I had to kind of scrape around over the years and try to figure out, well, what can I do that no one else seems to want to do or can do? And the thing that I always had really liked and was good at was mimicking sounds. So I went in that direction, you know, started making my guitars sound like a car horn or seagulls or elephants or rhinos. <laughs> and uh, that gave me my entry into my own little piece of real estate in the, 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 the huge universe of guitar players. I would have to say I love a lot of great guitar players. There have been a lot of them. And I, nothing thrills me more than to hear a really excellent guitar player. But most guitar players are a pretty, uh, what's the word I would like to use? They're kind of not very inventive, uh, innovative, maybe is the better word. I think so many guitar players really are just trying to sound like their heroes. They want their hero's guitar, even. So they'll play the exact Les Paul that the guy in Led Zeppelin played, you know, and they'll play pretty much those licks and maybe something else. Shredding is a good, good example of it. Shredding guitar players are fantastic, unbelievable. But they all really do the same thing, and they, you know, and it's fantastic, and I can't do it, so... And I really do uh, admire it, but you know, it's it's sort of like there aren't a lot of guitar players who actually try to take the instrument somewhere new. And um, I think Jeff did that. And you do that too. I can't wait to see you here uh, at the Vic, and just good luck with the rest of your tour. But it's really been a pleasure and honor to talk with you, Adrian. So thanks so much. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much. That's it for episode 71 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Adrian Ballou for wowing us with his musicianship and insights. The 2023 Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou Remain in Light Tour kicks off February 16th in Denver, the day this episode drops. It will hit St. Louis on February 22nd, Minneapolis on February 24th, and Chicago's Vic Theater on February 25th. Many dates, including in New York, Boston, and Seattle, follow. Go to remaininlight.net to learn more and to buy tickets. Also go to adrianbelew.net, that's B-E-L-E-W, to buy music and merch and to keep up on tour dates. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who keeps the Carol Pop houses in motion. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well, at Mark Carroll, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. 
Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.